Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today, we're talking with Professor Katrin Messner, the Director of the Climate Change Research Centre at UNSW. The Climate Change Research Centre aims to better understand climate processes and the dynamics on all scales. On today's episode, we explained what carbon cycles are and their impact of warming on our climate and our society and ecosystems. You're listening to Coogee Voice. There is a natural carbon cycle, right? Let's just take the humans out of the picture for the first minute. So there's carbon in the atmosphere. There's always been carbon in the atmosphere uh, in terms of CO2, carbon dioxide or methane, CH4. There's carbon on land, everything we see on land, the trees, ourselves, we're made out of carbon. Uh, fish, lizards, snakes, that's all carbon, right? And there's carbon in soils. And of course, there's really a lot of carbon in the ocean. Heatwaves are actually interesting because um, I, I don't know if everybody un- realizes this, but um, heat is already killing more Australians than all other natural hazards combined. Catherine, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? I am great today. Thank you. Um, I've been to the beach. I've been for my swim. Life is good. How are you? I finally feel like spring is here. Today feels like spring is here. It's warm. There's birds out. I was woken up by kookaburras. Um, I had and the smell of the spring is here. It smells like spring. I agree. Yeah. Uh, I also have hay fever, so that's that's not the good side of spring for me. <laughs> I can't stop sneezing. Yeah, so to anyone who's listening, if I get onto a sneezing fit, UNSW is in the heart of the eastern suburbs. I just want to, before we kick off and start talking about your work, what do you love most about the eastern suburbs? The community, I think. The ocean and the community. So we we moved here 12 years ago because the Climate Change Research Centre was was just starting off and they asked me if I wanted to work there. And when we came for the first interview that was 13 years ago with two small kids, we actually stayed in Kuji. I went for my interview. My husband took the kids to the beach every day. And our daughter, who was four at the time, actually, she looked at me and said, uh, can we just stay? Do we have to go back? Like, can we just stay right now? And, and we loved it. So we went back and, and I accepted the job. It took us a year to come back here. But we never even looked for a place to stay outside Kuji. For us, it was clear that's where we wanted to live. Um, that's a school where we wanted our kids to go, Kuji Public. We, we just really like the sense of community here and, of course, the beautiful coastline. If there was anything you would change, what would that be? In Kuji? Yeah. Oh, I would. I, <laughs> you, you might not like that, but I would actually try to get the cars out of Arden Street and out of Kuji Bay Road so that we actually have a quiet, safe access to the beach where we can just party and, and meet people and have kids playing on the street. I, I wouldn't make it completely car-free, of course, but just these big arteries so that people can safely walk to and from the beach. I actually am incredibly supportive of potentially turning Coogee Bay Road 
uh, into an open flat mall and pedestrian friendly. I really actually like that idea. I think it would be really, really wonderful. Catherine, you're the director of the Climate Change Research Centre at UNSW. Really, really remarkable. I guess before we start talking about your work, can you give us a little bit about your background and how you became the director? So I, I grew up in, in Germany. That's why I have a weird accent. Apologies. Um, in, in Berlin. And that's where I did my high school. And then I went to France where I did an undergrad degree in, in engineering. But I wanted to actually really work with the ocean or in anything that has something to do with the ocean. I always loved the ocean. So I, I then decided in my last year of engineering to, to also to do a double degree basically in physics. And, and I got a degree in physical oceanography together with my engineering degree and then went on to do a master's um, thesis in Africa and Senegal. And that was on the monsoon strengths in Western Africa and also, of course, on ocean temperatures. And then I came back to Germany. Um, so I hadn't been in Germany for several years because I did my undergrad in France and did a PhD in fluid dynamics, basically geophysical fluid dynamics. So oceanography and circulation of the ocean. And then I went to Canada after that. That's where I met my husband. That's where we had two kids. And I became a professor in, in climate science um, as a climate modeler. But of course, with, with my area being really physical or physics of, of, of the climate system and, and physical oceanography. And then finally, um, I got the position here. So basically, we moved here because we both liked the ocean and the water in Canada was very cold. <laughs> so we, we decided to move here. And, and I was a professor here at CCIC at the Climate Change Research Center. And I think um, in 2017, I became the director of the center. For all of our year 12 students that are listening as well, I think that's a really interesting journey as to how you got here. And for young people who are thinking about what do they want to do next? I think there's some huge opportunities and jobs in this space that are encouraging people. If, if I can say anything to all the students listening who are going through, through this right now during the lockdown, which is extremely hard, and my advice would be follow your dreams. So I, I, I have been told throughout my, my education that apparently I was taking the wrong choices to do oceanography and I should do something where you earn more money. And I'm so glad that I just followed my interests because here I am and I can still work on the ocean. I can go for a swim <laughs> and work on the ocean and I have a job and I have a salary. So really do what you want to do. Do what you're passionate for. Now, Katrin, on the back of the IPCC report, there's been a huge amount of conversation around climate change and what's happening to our environment. For me, I think one of the most dangerous uh, and sad things that has happened in the discussion is really a polarisation of it. And particularly there's increasing or there is rhetoric that is, I don't believe in climate change, which for me, um, it's really sad because, you know, climate change is science, it's fact, it's not a religion, <laughs> it's not a faith system. I guess, what are your thoughts about that? About people who don't believe in climate change? Yeah. And, and how do you have a conversation with people who say those kinds of things? 
<laughs> That's a really good question. So um, that depends on my mood, actually. <laughs> um, quite often, I will just ask them, I, I will try to understand where they're coming from, because you, I mean, of course, you can, you can for yourself decide to believe or not believe in anything. You can believe that the earth is flat. But um, I try first to understand what their understanding is of climate change and climate science. Because in my opinion, it's it's um, it's uh, it's funny to just say you don't believe in climate change. You can also say you don't believe in gravity, or you don't believe that antibiotics work, or you can say you don't believe in in vaccinations. Uh, so it's a very very um, timely topic. But um, climate change is just reality. Um, so quite often, when when I then dig a little bit deeper and try to understand why people don't or say they don't believe in climate change. There's actually different reasons for them that are not science-based. It's usually based on, on, on either a political. Yeah, here we are. I didn't want to talk about politics, <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's it's either um, related to 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 a political belief or understanding or or value system, which they think is can, cannot be put together with climate change, which I don't agree with. Actually, you can have a very conservative point of view and still tackle climate change. It shouldn't be political at all. Or sometimes it's really just a misunderstanding of climate change. Having said that, if I'm in a bad mood, um, quite often when people ask me what I do, I just tell them, oh, I, I, I'm a personal assistant at the university or I'm the janitor or <laughs> just try to avoid these discussions depending on my mood. <laughs> All right. We'll change the topic a little bit. Now, the centre is leading research uh, in physical and biochemical climate science and your aim is to educate the Australian and global community about risks associated associated with climate variability and change. Climate change research is a huge, huge area, and there's so much that we can be unpacking here, but we don't have all day. So let's just try and focus on a couple of the research areas. And I'd really like to start with carbon cycles and understanding carbon cycles, what they are and what it is in terms of driving climate change. There is a natural carbon cycle, right? Let's just take the humans out of the picture for the first minute. So there's carbon in the atmosphere. There's always been carbon in the atmosphere uh, in terms of CO2, carbon dioxide or methane, CH4. There's carbon on land. Everything we see on land, the trees, ourselves, we're made out of carbon. Uh, fish, lizards, snakes, that's all carbon, right? And there's carbon in soils. And of course, there's really a lot of carbon in the ocean. And without humans, this carbon gets just exchanged, or even with humans, it just gets exchanged between, between these reservoirs, right? So you have a tree, for example, that will take up carbon, will photosynthesize, will put it into its leaves, the leaves then fall and they die and they get eaten up by microbes and goes back into the atmosphere. Same for the ocean, it takes some carbon up in some regions and then it will bring carbon back to the atmosphere in other regions. So, so it's just like a, a, a cycle in itself. If we now add humans, humans now add extra carbon. So you can maybe see it as your bank account. So let's say you get a salary and then you spend it every month, right? You have your rent, you, you go to the grocery store. And, and overall, it's pretty much neutral. But there's things coming in and it's coming out. So that, that's basically the, the natural carbon cycle. But what humans now do is that they add additional carbon. 
And in terms of the whole transactions <laughs> or exchanges, it's actually not that much, but it's extra. It's extra, right? So it's like if you're, your grandmother now gives you every month an extra $5,000, you will feel that difference. Even though maybe your rent and all that is, is much bigger, I don't know, or, or, but, but you will see that extra carbon. So we are now taking carbon out of, of the ground, this fossil carbon that hasn't, has been in the ground for millions of years, and we put it all of a sudden into the atmosphere. And by doing so, we increase CO2, and CO2 is a greenhouse gas, so that makes the temperatures warmer, and of course, lots of other things that change as precipitation, it starts to melt ice, all that. And that extra carbon actually doesn't stay completely in the atmosphere. The land takes some up, the ocean takes some up. So that's where we get into the nitty gritty details. But as a summary, basically the more carbon we add, the warmer it will get. And that's why we have this discussion right now to get to net zero emissions. It's basically we have to stop adding extra carbon. It doesn't really matter if we, how quickly we stop. What matters is how much extra carbon we still have left to put into the atmosphere to avoid certain targets of warming. Was, was that an okay explanation or was that too complex? No, I think that that is a great response. I also think it's a great sort of natural segue to then ask, how does that extra carbon then impact our climate, and our ecosystems? The first and foremost impact is that it leads to warming, right? So we have more carbon in the atmosphere that will absorb the long wave radiation that gets reflected back from, from the surface will, and, and, and will re reflect it. So basically, it, it leads to a warming of the atmosphere. And that warming of the atmosphere, of course, will warm the surface ocean, and it will change the circulation pattern in the atmosphere. Um, it will change rain pattern. It will lead to more extreme rainfall, for example, because warmer air can hold more moisture. So for Australia, the forecast is that our extreme rainfall events will become more intense. So we will have more intense flooding, for example. It will warm the ocean. So we know that the Great Barrier Reef has a, has a big problem because it has these, um, these bleaching events, severe bleaching events that happen now that that start to happen so so close to to each other that the reef doesn't have time to recover and and then at the end you 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 see reefs that die so i we went to fiji i don't know four or five years ago and, and i was swimming over really like me i'm i'm, a, I'm an ocean I, I love to swim in the ocean <laughs> so i was swimming really for an hour or two over a dead reef it was i, I cried in my mask so, so it warms up the ocean, it warms up the atmosphere, it changes the precipitation um, on land. So we know for Australia, for example, there's a wind band over the Southern Ocean, the Southern Hemispheric Westerlies, and we know that this wind band migrates southwards with climate change. And that's the wind band that dumps water or rain onto southwestern Australia. So we know that precipitation southwestern Australia will decrease in the future. The heat waves, of course, will become more extreme, more frequent. Fire weather will become more extreme. The whole fire season will become stronger, longer, and will start earlier. So what we've seen last uh, 2020, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, I guess it's still last, like a year and a half ago in terms of fires. That's what we get with one degree of warming 
global warming 1.4 thing in Australia. So just imagine if, if we go higher up, which, which we will. What else? The other effect that more CO2 in the atmosphere does is that, as I said, the ocean takes up quite a bit of this extra CO2, about 30%. The ocean has taken up about 30% of the CO2 that um, humans have emitted. And when the ocean takes up CO2, it acidifies. You might have heard about ocean acidification. So it already has acidified quite a bit. And what we are concerned about is that with that acidification that actually starts to dissolve calcium carbonate in the ocean and, and, and lots of corals, for example, are, are made out of argonite, that's calcium carbonate, but also lots of phytoplankton that's at the bottom of the food chain is made out of um, calcium carbonate. And the next thing we can talk about is sea level rise. So if you warm up the ocean, the ocean water temperature becomes warmer and, and warmer water expands, right? So now we have a warmer ocean that expands and that will increase the sea level just because it will take up more space. But on top of that, of course, um, continental ice sheets start to melt and that's extra water that goes into the ocean that leads to, to sea level rise. So sea level will actually continue for a long time. Even if we, we completely stop our emissions now, we will see sea level rise for hundreds of years, probably thousands of years before, before it comes down because the, the, the climate system is really slow to react. It's, it's, it, we, we hit it really really aggressively with lots of CO2, it's still trying to catch up to it, right? It's, it's a slow system to react to it. So I think um, there, and that's, that's actually what's I think so scary about climate change is that it's not a real danger that's in your face. Like you go for a swim and you see a big shark in front of you. You're worried, right? I mean, that's something you're used to uh, from generations of evolution. It's, it's a big animal with teeth, you're, you're, you're worried. Climate change happens on so many levels and the statistics change. And then you have maybe a little bit more of a flood here, a little bit more of a fire there, a little bit of coral bleaching there. And I don't know if humans really can recognize this as a threat by just looking at it without looking at the statistics, without realizing over long term that things are changing. So what I'm the most concerned about with climate change myself is that actually all these things happen at the same time. So we will see in some cases crop failures, we will see more fires, we will see more floods, we will see ocean acidification, we'll see rising sea levels, we'll see more intense heat waves. Um, all these things will happen at, at, at once and will stress systems that we as humans depend on. And that can then really lead to macroeconomic shocks. Like if some, some of these things happen at the same time, there's only that much societies can really absorb at the same time. You've mentioned how slow the environment is to change. There's been a lot of conversation around net zero by 2050. Uh, the IPCC report, though, again, has articulated that that's way too late and there needs to be change much, much sooner. I guess, can you explain why we need action now? It actually should have been ages ago, but why we need it now? Why there is this huge urgency? I think one of the main or the most important responses to that is that the climate system will not react very quickly. So um, even if we stop emitting carbon now, 
it will actually continue to warm up before it starts to cool down. So if we today decide we do not like this increased fire weather, we do not like the floods, we are concerned about the Great Barrier Reef, um, let's just completely stop everything now, we will still very likely lose the Great Barrier Reef because we will continue to warm before we actually start to cool. And the reason for that is the, our planet, we, we live on a blue planet. There's lots of oceans and ocean is water, right? And water, now I'm getting a little bit physical here, but water has a really high heat capacity. So that means if you come home in the evening and you're very hungry and you want to make quickly some pasta and you put this big pot of water onto your stove and you put the, the fire on underneath, it takes forever to warm up. Even though your fire is really hot, it takes forever. And once it's hot, it takes forever to cool down. And that's exactly what's happening right now. Our oceans are warming up really slowly. And they're still trying to adapt to this extra CO2 that's in the atmosphere. And our continental ice sheets, they also melt really slowly. So if, if you go camping in the summer, like we, we love that. Right? We, we, we are big campers, right, with my family. So we, we go camping in the summer. It's really, really hot. And we, we have a freezer with us. Uh, how do you call them here? Esky? No, cooler. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Esky. And, and, and you have some, some ice in there and everything you want to eat and your beer, everything you need. And after two or three days, you go to a service station and you, you get new ice and you dump the old ice beside your tent in the sun on the green grass. And it's really, really hot. It still sits there for a really long time. It takes a long time to melt this ice. And that's called latent heat. So warming up the ocean takes a long time. Melting ice takes a long time. And that means that our climate system will actually still try to absorb all this extra heat before it actually starts to cool down again. So that means, for example, in, in terms of sea level. So what, what we have right now in the atmosphere, it's about 415 ppm CO2. Last time the climate had these kind of CO2 concentrations was over 3 million years ago. Uh, but during that time, the concentration were there for a long time. So the climate system had time to adjust. So sea level was much higher than today. Like we're not talking about 50 centimeters a meter. We talk way above six meters, probably above 10 meters. So that's where we are heading, right? If we keep CO2 constant at the levels it is at today. If we continue to burn CO2, it will go up. So what we need is to stop it so we keep CO2 constant and then we need to, they, there are some natural processes that will slowly get the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Maybe we can find some ways to get CO2 out of the atmosphere to then start to cool it down. But even at constant CO2 levels as we have them today, if we stop emitting, the climate will continue. So that's why we say we need to stop now. So we, we had this Paris Agreement, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about that where the world decided that we want to avoid climate warming above 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial level. And absolutely, we want absolutely avoid this global warming to be above two degrees. So we already are at one degree. We only have half a degree left. And according to the newest IPCC report, if we want to have an 83% chance to make the 1.5 degrees, not to exceed the 1.5 degrees. An 83% chance is not 
that means you have a 17% chance to miss it. I don't know how many listeners would go onto a Qantas flight if the pilot says, oh, we will likely make it, but 70% chance we, we will actually crash. <laughs> but okay, so if we say 83% is enough, then we only have about six years left to completely cut all emissions. We, will, we won't make that. So 1.5 degrees is gone. We, will, we are now on road for two, two degrees or more. That's why they say you need to cut now to make sure that down the line, we still stay within a climate that I don't think is safe. Lots of my colleagues don't think it's safe, but it's the best we can do right now. What are the things that we need to do then to achieve net zero? What has to happen? <laughs> so, so I'm I'm a climate scientist, right? So I, I don't have to I don't have to answer these questions about energy. But basically, yes, we we have to we have to switch to energy sources that are not based on fossil fuels. And don't ask me because I that's not my that's that's not what I do. But it needs to be either renewable, so solar or wind. It probably nuclear has also some role in it, at least transitionally, to make it, although that's, of course, a high-risk energy source, but better than burning fossil fuels. But we need to stop to burn fossil fuels. You've touched on the impact of increased heat. I'm really interested to know about your research and around heat waves in particular. Right. So so um, heat waves, of course, are are projected to increase in intensity and and in frequency. And that that's I think pretty understandable. If if the background temperatures go up, then the heat waves go up too. Heat waves are actually interesting because um, I, I don't know if everybody un- realizes this, but um, heat is already killing more Australians than all other natural hazards combined every year. And, and the reason we don't really know that is. Uh, as I like to say, heat actually kills silently. So you see that when you look at, at, at um, hospital admissions, if you and 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 try to correlate those with with heat waves. So so people get cardiovascular problems, or so so in in a way you don't see it like when when there's a fire or flood, you see the people who are actually victims of this one event. The the heat waves is a little bit more of a silent killer but it is a, a huge killer so so for the 2009 black saturday for example um that one killed 173 people i think around there but the heat the heat wave that was associated with this bushfire killed three over 370 people so way more than the fire itself so heat waves um will be a problem especially for australia we live in a very hot country and it will be not so much a problem for people in Kuji. Uh, that's maybe also why we chose to live here, because we have this wonderful ocean in front of our door uh, with, with a really high heat capacity, as I explained earlier. And that will keep us pretty much cooler than, than the people who are um, out in Western Sydney, where by mid-century, they, they will have days um, that will touch 50 degrees. So so heat waves are, are very serious um, on land, but something that actually lots of new research is a little bit of a hot hot topic right now that we research a lot are heat waves in the ocean because the ocean also has heat waves and those heat waves have big implications on ecosystems on fisheries on coral reefs there were several ones in i think there was one in tasmania though that's not really my area but there was one in tasmania that that killed off 
a lot of the the ecosystem in, in Tasmania. There was one in Ningaloo a few years ago. So these ocean heat waves also cause us grief, and we are trying to understand how how they happen, what generates them, um, and if we can forecast them. A lot of people come and talk to me and say, "Well, what what can I do? What can I do on an individual level to, you know, support or stop climate change?" What is your answer to that? Uh, that that's that's a very good question. It's a question that sometimes makes me a little bit mad because I really do not like it when when this shame and blame game is played on individuals. Of course, we can all do things like maybe walk more, take less your car, try to eat a little bit less meat. I mean, all that is probably also good for your health. But I don't think that this will fundamentally change. Um, the problem we are facing. And I do not think that it should be the individuals that have to change their own lifestyle or give up their, their quality of life. I think we need structural changes in a way that there's no losers in, in the society and especially no losers in, in socioeconomical backgrounds or in, in, in certain regions that would be prone to be the losers, like I'm, I'm thinking about the La Trobe Valley or, or anyone who works in coal mining. Or we, we need solutions that, in, in my opinion, need to come from the government to make sure that there's no winners, no losers, and that we do this in a sustainable way to completely structurally change our industries, our energy supplies. And we can. The technology exists. So in a way, to, to take this back, it's like if well, I wasn't around, but I can just imagine the water quality of Sydney Harbour before the 1970s, before there was any legislation and everybody just dumped everything in there, all the wastewater from, from industries, everything went into the Sydney Harbour. What you needed was not to say, oh, no, 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 don't, don't, don't put your Coke bottle into the Sydney Harbour. You needed rules. You needed to tell the industries, no, you can't just dump your wastewater. You have to treat it. You need, you need, you need it. This is not sustainable. Can't just, this, the Sydney Harbour is a shared good for everyone in Sydney. It should be enjoyed by all kids. We should be able to jump in and swim. You can't just dump your stuff in there because it's cheaper. And I think that's maybe also where the whole political discourse comes into, because, of course, this is something that goes very much against a more conservative stance where you say everybody for themselves and, and industries should be supported in, in a free market to, to do what is the best for them. But um, in, in terms of climate change, I really think the only way out is structural changes that have to be somehow imposed by legislation, by rules, and the big companies already start. I actually have seen that most of, and, and including all companies, they start to change their, their own programs. They, some of them now have to actually report their financial risk that's associated to climate change. So things are changing, but please don't start to, to just point to somebody and say, oh, this guy has five stakes a week and he has a big car. Uh, obviously the future is likely electrical cars, but it, it, needs to, it needs to be a way that nobody loses in, in life quality and lifestyle. Here, here. <laughs> we sort of touched on this briefly at the beginning. We are coming to the end of the year. A lot of students across New South Wales are thinking about what they should do next. If they're interested in climate change, 
what are the kinds of degrees or courses that they should be looking at, particularly at UNSW? Oh, I love that question, of course. Um, we have one course, it's called CLIM 101, <laughs> that is uh, open for anyone. You don't need any prerequisites. And it's a, an introduction to climate change, to the science of climate change. It's, it's really fun. It also covers the psychology of climate change. It covers a little bit the politics behind it. it it's, a, it's an all-rounder. And we have another one, CLIM 202, that is a brand new course. We just ran it the first time this term, and that's on climate risk um, and how climate will impact different sectors, economical sectors, um, uh, yeah, in, in Australia and worldwide. If you want to do a career as a climate scientist, that's different, of course. Um, you probably need a degree in either math or physics, chemistry, biology, and, and science. So climate change is a very diverse, and that's why I love it, actually. I, I have to learn new things all the time, all the time, because my work has aspects of physics, of chemistry, of biology, of, of everything, and, 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 and um, recently even of, of economy and finances. And it really goes into all the sectors. But um, a, a quantitative um, degree helps. There are equations involved, yeah. Involved. I'm sure all the math teachers listening are saying, see, <laughs> you do use this outside of high school. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Catherine, before I let you go, there are three tough questions we ask all of our guests that come onto Coogee Voice. You must declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where you can get the best coffee, and where sells the best burgers? Go. Ha. Oh, that's tough. I would say my preferred beach is probably, can I take two? Marubra and Kuji. I said very quickly, Marubra and Kuji. <laughs> Depending on what I want to do. Marubra is just beautiful for almost everything. Surfing, of course. And Kuji, Kuji is, is great because it's just down, down here, down the street. And I can go snorkeling and pedal boarding and swimming the best coffee um yeah sorry i just go with the proud gusto i love gusto <laughs> and what about burgers i i'm not so much of a burger person um what i really like is the mogo mogo place and they make my special fish ball which is a combination of two balls that they have on 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 their menu and they're lovely and it's yummy and i get it as a takeaway and i eat it at the beach I also am partial to a Pokeball, so I will have to try this out. That's <laughs> yeah, awesome. Katrin, thank you for being on the show. If our listeners would like to learn more about the Research Centre, where should they head to? Uh, they can email me. They can email the centre. It's all on the webpage, Climate Change Research Centre at UNSW. Katrin, thank you so much for joining us on Could You Voice. Have a lovely day. You too. Thank you. That was lovely. Wow. I personally found that to be an incredibly informative discussion. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the Research Centre, check them out at ccrc.unsw.edu.au. You've been listening to Coogee Voice. 